Hello everybody, welcome to the court cards of the sword suit. As you know, we are going to do the same thing that we did with the previous wands and cup courts. We're going to go in uh, descending order, I guess. King or knight, followed by queen, followed by knight or prince, followed by page or princess. And uh, if you would like a complete overview of the courts, that's in episode 32, which is entitled King or Knight of Wands, Overview of the Courts. Well, I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about the swords types in general, swords types of people. Because, yeah. you know, one thing I've noticed, they're all kind of referred to in their positive and negative qualities in very similar ways. They're all super smart, you know, intelligent, skilled, all the virtues of thought, you know, discriminating skills, living by wits, um, conversational. They're all like that. And then as on their negative side, they're all referred to as crafty or sly or deceitful or <laughs> right. somehow bad, you know, <laughs> evil, evil types, cruel or cold or calculating. Calculating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's like, they all have that going on. That's true. That's true. And I think because it is the suit of the mind, you see everything that's good about that and everything that's bad about that. We see family qualities in every set of courts. The wands courts are all bright and energetic and driven, and the uh, cup courts are all super feely and sensitive and, you know, have insights into the heart. But with the swords, they're extra special in a way because the powers of the mind are something we so value and so rely on and which causes us so much trouble. Yeah, it almost <laughs> creates everything. It, it creates you know? <laughs> everything as well as like every problem the world has ever had. Right. It's a problem Every problem mind. and its solution. <laughs> no, wait, that's what uh, Homer Simpson called alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> but I was thinking about, you know, in terms of the stories of air, you know, so we've, it's all the fool the air trump for the night we have the fool with the lovers mm -hmm. and the magus as mercury mm -hmm. being the ruler of gemini mm -hmm. and then for the queen we have the fool and adjustment and the empress with venus as the ruler of libra yeah and then we have for the prince or knight we have the fool with the star and the universe as the Saturn, the ruler mm -hmm. of Aquarius. So there's kind of an inter interesting, if you look at it in terms of the, the signs that we're going to go through for these three cards that we're going to talk about today. Well, in this episode, we're going to focus on the night, but mm -hmm. we'll go do the other two next. In terms of the signs, they all have something to do with the other. You know, Gemini is the other as the twin, you know, the polarity. I like and, that. And then you have Libra as the other, as like the partner. Mm -hmm. And then you have Aquarius and it's the other, it's like the alien, you know, the, yeah. <laughs> the, the Aquarius alien energy. The distant you know? other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they're all a form of division made by the sword, you mm -hmm. know, the self and the other. Polarity with Gemini, partnership with Libra and balancing that. And then Aquarius, it's like, individuality like right. to an extreme. I like that a lot. And also it ties in with that story of the fool that we told about his wayfinding capacities. If you can think about the Libra cards as having to do with um, 
being at the crossroads, as we talked about. Uh, you can think of the queen as the person who arrives at the crossroad and discerns the pattern. Right. Yeah, big time. Right? Yeah. And then if you think of the fixed cards, the Aquarius cards, you have the prince or knight of swords who is there to use his skills to unpack the problem and to take us forward. And then with the king or knight of swords, you have the Gemini capacity to commit to a decision for better or for worse and to kill off the other option and move forward, which we see a lot with his kind of rigidity and judgmental nature. He can do that, and he can not look back, even if it hurts people's feelings. His hermetic titles, Lord of the Winds and the Breezes, King of the Spirit of Air, King of Sylphs and Sylphides, or Sylphides, I guess. I don't want it to sound too much like Sulphides. <laughs> I'm not even sure uh, exactly what a Sylphide is, but I know that a Sylph is just an elemental creature Elemental air. air creature. Now, I, I don't know if those are gender-related uh, terms. Yeah. Or uh, not. I, <laughs> I mean, I think that often sylph and fairy air elementals are depicted as being somewhat androgynous in the first place. Or maybe senior and junior, you know, yeah, <laughs> or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. He is, of course, associated with fire, the fiery part of air, so the fiery qualities of air, which I took to mean basically it's um, attacking inrushing qualities, so yeah. like gusts and breezes. Yep, yep. And if you think about fire of air and I often think of fire as will and air as reason or intellect so we're we're talking about the intellect or logic capabilities influenced by the will that activating force behind ideas yeah I, I mean I had some trouble sort of actually trying to reconcile the sort of aggressive qualities of fire with the mutable qualities of Gemini in my mind. You know what I mean? Yeah. I guess there's a lot of coming and going. Yeah. Both ways. So when we talk about, again, just to remind people, since we haven't done courts for a while, when we talk about fire of air or the fiery part of air, we're not saying that air is necessarily fiery in its way. We're talking about a different kind of quality where you think of the non-temperature qualities of fire, but it's behavior, I guess. Yeah, the the mm -hmm. idea that knights are this really active force, you know, then that's a fire term, activity and motion. Yeah, and if you contrast that, for example, with the airy part of fire, which would equate to the prince or knight of wands, that would be, for example, the sort of capacity of air to transmit and be everywhere at once, I guess. So like, you know, the capacity, the continuous transmitting capacities of fire, something like that. The steady enthusiasms of the prince or knight of yeah. wands, the never flagging, almost annoying optimism. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was Crowley who talked about the fiery part of air as having to do with winds and storms and violent motion. And you see that in his card, for sure. For sure. For sure. And especially much more so in the Thoth card than in the Waite-Smith card. Yeah, the Waite-Smith card almost seems too static for this yeah. Gemini mutable knight figure, you know? The one thing I thought about it when I was sort of comparing the Waite-Smith king, queen, and knight was that they do seem to 
in terms of being the fiery part of air, he's the one with the sunniest day, <laughs> and she's the one with yep. the like wettest, cloudiest day. Yeah, I, I, you know I, what I, I think mean? I have seen the fire part of air described as sunshine through, yeah. the, through the air. You know? Yeah. So, But in general, the, I think it's true of all the courts that they don't give us an absolute ton to work with. Yeah. You with don't, you don't see a lot of evidence of the trees moving around in the right. weight picture either, you know, which you'd think you would see the for the lord of the winds and the breezes. You, you would you, think so. So, yeah, his his mutability, his the mutable qualities of Gemini... You know, I was thinking about Gemini and what we were talking about in the 8 and 9 and 10 of Swords, and there's definitely that tendency that we talked about in the 10 of Swords to see things as in black and white. Like when the sun in Gemini, in the 10 of Swords, shines at its harshest and brightest, then, you know, everything gets separated into high contrast, black and white. And I think there's, in this personality of uh, the Knight or King of Swords, there's an ability to see that, to break things down that way. Yeah, it's that Gemini polarity thing. And we always talk about Gemini as choice, and in a way, decision and decisiveness are aspects of choice, right? It's like if you have a choice, it implies a decision. We were talking, you know, in the 8, 9, and 10 of Swords episodes about Gemini in general, and one thing that I don't think we mentioned, we talked a lot about all those twins, you know, all yeah. those different sets of twins. And one thing I was thinking about and realized that I don't even think we mentioned is that Castor and Pollux, the set of twins that were born from the eggs, they were actually dual sets of twins. They were like quadruplets. In some stories, you see that out of each egg, so out of Castor's egg, I think it was Castor and Clytemnestra oh, were born out of that egg. And yeah. out of uh, Polydeuces or Pollux's egg was Helen of Troy. Yeah. So they were like two sets of twin twins, you know what I mean? That's yeah, ringing like a bell now. Twins squared. <laughs> Which I thought was kind of interesting and we forgot to mention when we were talking about the Double whole... the trouble. Right. <laughs> so much trouble. Exactly. <laughs> yep. You know, because this particular night with Gemini, there's a lot of the trickster energy, you know, mm-hmm. with Gemini being ruled by Mercury. So you're really going to see it strongly. And and if you go through the stories of those twins, they're all kind of bad, you know? Um, <laughs> it doesn't end so You know, the, we all know the story of Helen of Troy and mm-hmm. her beauty causing... Clytemnestra, too. Yeah, with, yeah. In, in that story, there's a lot of... Being betrayed, betrayal, and Agamemnon, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and some kind of um, harsh judgments going on, <laughs> right, in that story, you know. So it speaks a little bit about the violence of the sword, you know. <laughs> there's absolutely, a, there's does. a lot of violence in those stories. Yeah, and sacrifices, it's... and you know, mm-hmm. things like that. They're all stories of the things people feel they have to do, you know, that they're compelled to do yeah, for one reason or another. What's kind of interesting, we know that the three decans of this card, but then there's the alternate way of looking at it, which is that all knights are twos, all Mm -hmm. queens are threes, all princes are sixes, and all princesses are tens. So you could also equate this card with the two of swords, which is Uh, peace. But the, it doesn't seem very um, much like his nature. His nature seems far more violent. But then I think about the fact that it's peace restored. 
you know, is right. the original one of the titles, Golden right. Dawn yeah. title is not just peace, but peace restored. So there is that disturbance. And he, he seems right. to have a lot to do with the disturbance part of it. Yeah. You know, but yeah. nights are transitory. Their influence doesn't last, so it passes away pretty quickly. Yeah, and that uh, equation of two to knight or king, three to queen, and six to knight or prince, I think it, you know, for obvious reasons, seems to work best with the prince because all the six cards actually are in his province. And with yeah. the queen, all the three. The que- oh, so the prince yes, and the right. queen yeah. mm-hmm. each kind of have mm-hmm. their their three or their six in their group of Deccan cards. But Mm -hmm. in this case, the knight, he's the only one that doesn't. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit, about Deccans and associated uh, majors as well as minors. So as we have talked about in previous court cards, the way the Deccans work, what does Lon like to say, the Adopt-a-Deccan program? (laughs) (laughs) So even though we associate Knight or King of Swords with Gemini, it's the first two decans of Gemini and the last decan of the previous sign, which is Taurus. So therefore, we associate the majors of the Hierophant, which is Taurus, and the lovers, which is Gemini, with him. And, you know, I think that that's really interesting because I was sort of looking at those cards and trying to figure out how they related specifically to the King of Swords or Knight of Swords. And, you know, and I think there's some of the steadfast, like, stubbornness of the Hierophant, maybe. Some of the, like, earthy, grounded, not going anywhere, not changing my mind thing. Yeah, it's weird, because even though he's a knight and they're kind of transitory, he also has that really stubborn, enduring part of him. That's right. It's sort of like... That's in that last decan of Taurus. I think at one point, Crowley might describe him as, like, being steady, but able to turn in any direction. So once he turns, you're not going to be the one who makes him change his mind. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. You know, so you have, like, the unyielding judgment, the sort of clinging to an idea and being very fierce in defending it. And I was thinking also, like, if you look at the Hierophant and the Lover's cards in Wade Smith and sort of compare it to the King of Swords, that made me think a little bit of all of the ways that the church has used the fall, the story of the fall, to control people, you know, and to judge them and to create this narrative of sinfulness that people contend with within the church framework. It's also interesting just looking at the cards that the Hierophant in the Waite Smith deck has those two priests at the front, just yeah. like the two lovers. So then we again, we have the two sets of twins yeah. kind of thing going on. Yeah, that's kind of strange. The other thing that I was thinking about with the Deccan cards, so it's always neat to look at the Deccan that he doesn't have. The mm-hmm. Deccan that the sign of... The, so he we think of this card as being very Gemini-like. But what Deccan of Gemini does he not have? The last he doesn't one. have the final Deccan of Gemini, the Ten of Swords, Ruin, which is ruled by the sun. And I was thinking about that. So who does have that Deccan? The Queen of Cups. And she's yeah. water of water. She's like the ultimate personification of the suit, which ultimately boils down, if you boiled it down to one word, is love. Mm-hmm. So that's like what he's really lacking is that connection to the emotions. That's one thing that it says to me. Yeah. She picks up that 
part, kind of like the antidote to him is to see things from the other's point of view rather than right. being in your own, you know, because he has purely logical. And then the other thing, okay, not having the sun, the solar force, you know, that that Deccan that he doesn't have is ruled by the sun. And I was thinking about that. It kind of points also towards maybe the prince of the suit that another way to look at an antidote for his lack is towards the energy of what the prince embodies where he's gotten some of his mother's Mm. influence and steadiness and again that that addition of a queen you know what i mean yeah that's what's lacking in 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 this guy (laughs) yeah it's like he lacks that ten of swords deccan he hasn't learned the lesson of what happens you know when you continue on this path so having not met his rune he doesn't recognize that the outcome, the only possible way to address that is through love. Something like that. Something like that. I mean, when we talk about him as being so ruthless, Ruth itself just means kindness and that yeah. ability to empathize and feel compassion. Yeah, because when, when I see this card, it does definitely have the vibe of coldness and, you know, callousness almost. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Definitely cruel robot overlord type. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But it's also interesting to look on the other end at the shadow Deccan that he does have. Yeah. Which is the seven of pentacles or discs, the lord of failure. So he's got failure, he's got uh, interference or shortened force, and he has cruelty. Or cruelty and despair. Despair Or cruelty cruelty. and (laughs) despair, exactly. Yeah, and I think Liber Theta mentions his shadow Deccan as being... Failure as being that which he fears and overcompensates for through all his logical maneuverings. Yeah, I've been really thinking about that. And I I was thinking that like maybe when we're done with the whole series, we could do an episode on Shadow Deccans because it's so fascinating. Yeah, yep. And I was thinking maybe the Shadow Deccan is the thing that you are familiar with and that you renounce, that you're trying to get away from. And he... Or where you backslide. It could sometimes, be. Sometimes, you yeah. know, when you're, yeah. when you're not at your best. And either way, it, it's something you would fear. Yeah. You know, so, you know, his fear of failure, his fear of things not being able to succeed in their in original intent may be what leads him to his, you know, if you imagine him being paralyzed with fear over failure, that would explain his unwillingness to compromise. When they describe in a lot of places the ill-dignified meanings of this card, it's often said that when this card shows up and it's not dignified, he's incapable of having a purpose. He's incapable of making a decision. And it's kind of that inertia of that last decan of Taurus, you know, where you're like stuck in the maze and you can't really... Right, you can't see the end. Yeah. Yeah, so we talked a little about this, but maybe we can talk more about the Kabbalistic aspects of the card. So all swords exist in the world of Yetzirah, um, which can be expressed as the world of Netzach, Hod, and Yesod. I think the Yetzirah is the world of formation, and one way to think of it is as the blueprint for our reality in Malkut. There's something very magical about this world. Uh, it's the rules we live by, you know, and I think there's definitely sort of a legal governmental sense to these uh, swords court cards. And there is also the ability to rewrite those rules. 
and to change the world we live in in the most profound way. Because that world includes the world of Yesod, the world of foundation. So if you change the foundation, the preconceptions on which your world is built, your world changes. Yeah. So um, within the world of Yetzirah, we think of him as Chokma uh, in Yetzirah, the second Sephira, the Sephira of sky gods, that sort of first manifest impulse beyond the Keter symbol impulse to come into existence. We have the impulse to create. Yeah, the spark. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And which also goes with the idea of him being the fiery part of air. Not to mention, I don't know, when you think about the connection of fire and air, the one feeds the other. Yeah. Hot air. Hot air. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Wang, uh, that's Robert Wang of Kabbalistic Tarot. He likes to, elementally, he likes to describe the knight or king of... Uh, swords as specific fire in primal air, which is another way to do it. And so mm-hmm. you can do that with all of the court's, court cards, specific X in primal Y. Uh, and I think it's Crowley who says, I guess because of, again, the same qualities that all knights, kings, are swift and violent, but transient. You know, going back to the Deccans, the other thing that I thought was really interesting, looking at the constellations, is that the constellation for this area of the Knight of Swords is um, Origa, the charioteer. Yeah. But it shares a star with Taurus. The left tip of the lefternmost horn of Taurus shares a star with the constellation of Gemini. So that's kind of like neat. a neat little bridge between his decans, yeah. the final Taurus and, and verse 2 of, of Gemini. Um, What's the name of that star? Alnath. I'm not sure what that translates to, but it's the tip of the left horn of the bull. That's cool. So it's the Arabic al-Naf. And a little bit about that um, charioteer. You know, you think of the charioteer, you you would think of Cancer rather than Gemini. But nonetheless, that constellation, the charioteer, is in this area. And if you look at the mythology around it, there's a couple of things that kind of sound very tricksterish or mercurial. So there's um, there's one story that the charioteer is the son of Hephaestus, the fire smith Vulcan god. Either Hephaestus. either Hera or Zeus lamed Hephaestus. It's debated which one by kicking him <laughs> out of Mount Olympus. Right. Zeus is said to have kicked him out of Olympus for siding with Hera, or Hera did it for some other reason. <laughs> anyway, but, but what's really interesting is, so he became lame, but his son, whose name is something like Erichthonius. That sounds right. Who, yeah. Um, Wasn't he a king? Yeah. And yeah. he was also lame. And he somehow inherited his father's lameness, which I don't know how that works. <laughs> I don't know how that but works. But anyway, because he was lame, he built, he was an inventor and he mm-hmm. built this chariot. The chariot was his invention. Of that's course, how... given that he was Hephaestus' son, he could invent things. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. that, that's that, that idea of, um, ideas and inventing and the blueprint. It kind yeah. of speaks to that, um, Yetzirik theme we have here. But then there's another story that Ariga the charioteer was actually this character called 
Myrtilus or Myrtilus, I don't know how you pronounce it, mm -hmm. but he was the, a king's charioteer and the king had a beautiful daughter and As they in do. order, <laughs> yes, in order to win her hand, you had to beat the king in a chariot race and he had like these magical horses and, and no one, no one could beat him so his daughter could never get married and anyway, it, the, the, the Mercury trickster thing comes in because she falls in love with Pelops, who is a son of Hermes, and somehow either she does it or he does it. One of them convinces the king's charioteer to replace the axle of the chariot with wax, a wax ah, axle. Yeah. So as it heated up during the race at the critical moment, the axle breaks, the king is killed. Ooh. And his daughter is then free to marry Pelops, whom she chooses, whom she chooses mm -hmm. Hermes' son. So that that's a lot of trickster energy. Yeah, and a lot and, of mercurial stuff yeah, going, on. going on in that story um, of the charioteer. So I thought that was kind of cool. That's really cool. Yeah, and I think that this character definitely has that quality of Mercury's that is... A trickster quality, you know, a, um, a not entirely reliable out for his own yeah agenda, much more so than say the King of Discs right. or right. Knight of Knight of Discs or King of Pentacles. Right. Not yeah. one that you can put your trust in unless your your purposes happen to align with his. Right, because <laughs> right. he can see things from all points of view, but that doesn't necessarily give him the sense of principle or heart to temper that judgment. Yeah. Yeah, and that mm -hmm. that kind of reminds me of the the decan that he's missing, the solar decan. And I was thinking about that. So another the solar decan the sun is also often, you know, associated with with Tifereth and the holy guardian angel. They call it knowledge and conversation of yeah. the holy guardian. Now, yeah, now, that's and, true. And you know, knowledge in conversation, you think of as very Gemini, swordsy, air type things. Mm -hmm. But then there's also knowledge in the sense of like carnal knowledge in the b biblical sense, which is a form of embracing, right. which again points back to love. That love of the higher self exactly. is part of it. It's not just up here in your head. And it's significant that that takes place in Tiferet, which is the, you know, the interlocked triangles, the combination of the feminine and masculine on the above and the below. So you really need both parts. His court crest is a six-pointed star. Again, yeah. Tiferet, the, you know, like, so there's a message there. Something about what he really needs to complete his, yeah. himself. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay, so some of the playing card and cardomantic meanings are pretty interesting. So as far as Atea goes, this creature, this man, was, he called him either an homme de robe, which means like a magistrate, I think, a man of the robes, or an homme méchant, which means like just a mean guy. <laughs> <laughs> so he usually does this thing where he has like the positive meaning and the negative meaning, yeah. like, right? So he can either be like this very fair magistrate judge type person or just a complete dick yeah so um, <laughs> let's see what does he say about it he says i have this from from the grand Etea, um definitions which are a little different but still interesting it says avoid men of the law lawyers and there's a word i don't know what it means because they always make war on your fortune yeah <laughs> makes sense. he says in reverse this card tells you not to get too involved in a process which will ruin you 
infallibly, which sounds like good advice. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Fine, sure. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So there's a lot of playing card associations as well. The King of Spades, which we associate with the King of Swords, is typically associated in, in cardomancy with King David, he of the harp and sword. And it's kind of interesting because, for example, you know, in the story of David and Goliath, after he knocked him out with the slingshot, he cut off Goliath's head with Goliath's sword, with this massive sword. So, you know, there's a sword legend that goes with the story of David. Another thing that's interesting about David was the fact that he was the father of Solomon. Who so, built the temple. Who built the temple, yeah. right. So the greatest magician of all time, this was his father. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, right. Uh, he's also associated uh, in the Solobuska deck with Alexander the Great, just because, I don't know, because Alexander well, was think, such a conqueror. Yeah, I think this card, cardomantically, is often military men and soldiers. For sure. Too. That's definitely Even though that's it. a Mars, it's still, this card is often mentioned as being associated with, you know, Military commanders. Ah, uh, yeah. This is just a funny thing that I, that I, uh, I came, I found out when I was trying to find nicknames for the King of Spades. Um, apparently, so Robert E. Lee, the general commanding the Confederate Army in the Civil War, he was known for forcing his soldiers to like dig entrenchments and, you know, and build fortifications. So his nickname among them was King of Spades. <laughs> Nice. Which I think is like kind of cool just because, you know, it's sort of affectionate, sort of resentful, but also because we think of King of Spades or King of Swords, Knight of Swords as a military commander. Yeah. I think that's something that you see in Paul Hewson's book. Uh, he talks about uh, men of law, power, command, attorneys, uh, businessmen, judges, yes, things where what, we... Yeah. Need a joke about attorneys at the bottom of the ocean or something. <laughs> yeah. But I like the idea that he could be like a great military commander and his son, the prince, is often, I associate him at least with like police and like, you know, that kind of yeah. very forceful. Yeah. Harsh authority. Harsh authority. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Definitely. So they're two of a kind, really. It's uh, interesting too. We were, when, when we were talking about the, the swords overview. So all of these court cards, you know, each of these air signs that we're going to go through with these court cards, there's like a legendary sword or going on because, you know, in Gemini, you have the letter Zayn, which means right. sword. And then in the Libra, uh, you, you have the sword of justice, right? You know, adjustment or justice carrying the sword and then it's so so then you go get to Aquarius and the star and you're like well where's, <laughs> where's the sword where's the sword in that and I was kind of thinking about about that and it's like it's definitely more ethereal this idea that maybe the star when you think of the seven pointed star that's in the star card this idea that makes me think of Venus the seven mm-hmm. and the seven pointed star of Venus so Venus rules Libra the Empress when we were in that episode, there was a lot of themes of both death and life. So it's almost as if that's the sword there is the one that is that, that release of death and beyond into the, the soul, the soul's release into the starry realm or whatever. Yeah. Or something like that. I also think of like the star as very much a navigational tool. And I think about like 
the needle of the compass, you know, mm-hmm. the sort of magnetic quality, the quality mm-hmm. of a sword as a pointing device. Yes. And how, even though it's in the abstract, Aquarius implies that sense of direction. Yeah, yeah. that forward-seeking. Mm-hmm. That forward-pointiness. Yes, yes. <laughs> when, when we get to the looking at the weight cards, mm-hmm. You'll notice that the entire suit, they put butterflies as yeah. the, as one of the symbols. And that's kind of interesting because, okay, butterflies are sometimes seen in the star card as an emblem of the soul and all that. But one thing that was really interesting, especially in terms of this guy, is a, a Gnostic version of the angel of death was portrayed as a winged foot stepping on a butterfly. And isn't wow. that kind of cool? You know what I yeah. mean? Because it's got that Mercury winged foot and it's got the Aquarian kind of butterfly soul release death yeah. kind of thing going on. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. That's <laughs> super evocative. And just in general, I mean, I think we can talk about the weight card now. Yeah. But um, I think the butterflies generally, not only do they symbolize air because that's where they live and they can fly, but also because of the metamorphic qualities, yeah, you know, the transformation. transformation. And that reminds me a little bit about what we were talking about with the the magical qualities of the world of Yatsira. If you change the DNA, if you change the genetics then the outcome will be different as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like that idea of the flap of a butterfly's wing. Yeah. You know, something as simple as a thought can create profound changes. Right. That ripple outward. (laughs) Right. Exactly. All right. So here he is. I was looking at that butterfly and trying to understand a little bit about what could be the sort of curved figures behind it, whether that's an infinity sign or a waxing and waning moon or the motion of the wings of the butterfly. You know. Well, a motion makes sense, you know, for, for mm-hmm. nights, but also moon makes sense just because ye sowed this, the yep. sphere of the moon has a lot to do with thought and astral things. So there is some connection there yeah. with, with lunar theme. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the power of life and death to, pers- you know. <laughs> That's funny. Like I was saying. just looking at that. I had written down on here. Wait, calling this the power of life and death. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 By virtue of his force, he has the power of life <laughs> and death. Wait, he says does. in the pictorial key. He does. He says it in virtue of his office, and he says also, holding the unsheathed uh, sign of his suit. <laughs> <laughs> but he recalls the conventional symbol of justice in the Trump's major, and he may represent this virtue, but he's rather the power of life and death. What I think is really interesting about this card is that if you compare it to the justice card, and I don't have the justice card up, but I'm pretty sure that the justice card's sword is straight up and down, Hmm. whereas his is a little tilty, (laughs) you know? You could say that's pointing to Hakma if you're standing in the tree or something like that. You could say something like that. But you could also say that it's because he bends justice to his will, mm. right? He tilts it. He's not straight and upright within himself necessarily. Also see the two birds in the sky. So again, uh, two for Gemini. Twin, twins <laughs> thing. And he's got two little sylphs or whatever twins on his shoulder. Do you see them sitting oh, on his own? Oh, yeah. Grab shoulder, him for a sec. Uh, his left shoulder, I guess it would be. Yep. He's got those two little 
little fairies or whatever they are. Um, I guess they're sylphs and sylphides or something. Yeah, and actually he's got uh, above, on the top of the crown, he's got actually three butterflies, not just the one over his head, but one on each side, cause, yeah. so that could be like the supernals. Yep. He could be in the tree with his sword pointing to the And it looks like his crown has a, a winged head on it as well. Yeah, we should talk about winged heads. That's going to come up in the uh, Queen and Prince, actually, Especially. because they're part, the winged child's head is part of their crest. Not part of his crest, so it's interesting that he has he has that in the weight card. I think it's sort of like with these weightsmith cards that whatever the motifs are you're gonna see them in kind of everything yeah Yeah, like there's a butterfly in in everyone yeah yeah Yeah, butterflies and birds and the child head i guess yeah and the child head i guess it's like a little cherub or something and it's i think it's supposed to represent a purity of thought and they're guardians Mm -hmm. cherubs so Mm -hmm. it's a it's a guardian which kind of fits the suit yeah it's interesting i've never really thought about this but his internal robes and his sort of hood thing are bright red you know they well that's the fire of fire, fire of, of air. air yeah he's got the you know the blue for air i guess and the red for fire and i think also the idea that in in weights if we see someone with purity of intention we expect to see white sleeves white robe that kind of a thing this mm-hmm. guy is definitely led by his passions to mm. some degree and then you know his Robe just reminds me of kind of the idea that he is a sky creature. Right. He has, did you notice he's got a ring? I was just about to say that. You, <laughs> you took the words right out of my mouth. I was like, he's wearing a ring on that hand. <laughs> it's either a seal ring or something else. But I was just thinking because, you know, one of the things Solomon was famous for was his ring. Yeah. You know, the command of all of the angels and demons. Mm-hmm. Maybe he got his ring from his dad. <laughs> he looks as though he's sitting pretty high up, like atop a mountain or something like that. Which would make sense. Which would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. The king and queen, anyway, seem to be like living in the clouds, practically. Let's see. Anything else that Waite said that's worth mentioning? I don't think so. Oh, yeah. Well, he, he does make a great point of talking about the reversal. Cruelty, perversity, barbarity, perfidy, and evil intention. <laughs> and you know, actually, when I read court cards reversed, I don't generally necessarily read them as negative. I, uh, I use the reversals to help see where they're looking. You know, I am a reversals user, but with court cards, I especially like to see where they're looking. However, with the sword courts, I can't help getting a sense of behaving badly from the reversal. I don't get it from the other, you know, other suits, but there's something about this one where I feel like, God, someone's really being an asshole. <laughs> I wonder if it has something to do with, I mean, the Ace of Swords, they talk about in the upright position as, you know, being a positive thing. And, and if it's in the downward pointing, it's like invoking demonic forces and evil. Yeah. You know, the sword yeah. pointing down is, is just generally speaking a bad thing. <laughs> I think we got through weight pretty much. Yep. Just kind of looking at the miners for a second to see if there's anything else to get out of there. Well, just the sense, like if you look at the weight seven of discs to eight of swords to nine of swords, if you look at that progression, you see someone who's looking around him at the world, and then you see in the eight of swords, so that was the seven of discs, but then in the eight of swords, you see someone who cannot see around them, who is already bound up in their own world, inside their head. 
And with the nine of swords, you see someone who is really not dealing well with the contents covering, of their own covering head. their face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No longer looking around at around them, but but dealing with something very internal to their mental process. So that's kind of interesting. All right. So a uh, knight of swords in Thoth, Mr. Propeller Beanie. <laughs> Love this guy. Yeah. Well, one thing I, I realized reading Snuffin's book that I hadn't really noticed before, because it's not really that visible, but that his wings, those pro- that propeller that you call it, they, <laughs> they're, they're labeled with the four directions. What? If you look really... What? Yeah, look at it. Look at it up close. It, the, you can especially see it in the one, it says east. Holy there, cow, There he wow. is, you know? And so, and then she wrote he, it in English and everything. Yeah, it's written on there. It, it, it's, it looks like the filigree of a dragonfly wing, but it's actually saying the words for each of the four directions. Oh my god! And then, if you'll notice, the direction he's going then becomes southeast, which is fire and water. I mean, fire and air, south and east. Oh my it, god! When you're doing the you know lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram or the four, you know. That so, is so awesome. That's kind of cool, isn't it? <laughs> I never realized that until recently that it said that, and it brought a whole new interpretation to this card. <laughs> that's wicked cool. Wow. I don't think she, like, hand-wrote anything else in English in this deck. Or the, <laughs> the, the, the chariot. Uh, what she write? Oh, yeah. And, well, that's not and, English. And, well, that's not English. And, yeah. the, and the thing on the art card is Latin, and, right, you know? Right. So Yeah, so that's interesting. That's super weird and cool. Yeah. Oh my God! I can't get over that. So I always thought it was just you know the veins of the wings, the directions of fire and the directions of air, which he is really cool. He certainly is. Well, you can thank uh, Snuffin for that one because I wouldn't have seen it if he hadn't pointed it out. Seriously, you need some like you know Thelemic nerd who's willing to like sit here with the thing balanced on his nose for four days <laughs> or under a microscope or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. So about that uh, thing on his head, the propeller beanie, the other thing that it reminded me of is like a helicopter rotor, mm-hmm. you know, because the thing about helicopters is that they can turn on a dime, right? They're different in that way. You know, they have like a zero turning radius. Yeah. And that's typical of him as well. He can yep. switch. He can turn on a dime. Mm-hmm. He can. And it, you'll notice also that the center of that propeller is actually a six-pointed star. I did notice that. That is the only reference we have in that to the, you know, sort of six-point star that the book T yep. talks about, the yep. as above, so below star. And it's yeah. the other thing that strikes me about this card is the perspective. So you're yeah. almost, you got a God's eye view. You're looking down, you know, as if you're God himself, one of the supernals, the, you know, up in Keter and Hokma, mm-hmm. looking down, uh, you know, from the top down. Yeah, and he is going really fast. Yeah. Definitely. That's one thing you notice. I mean, I'm surprised that the propeller wings aren't blurred because the, the horse's ears are laid flat against his back. You know, the clouds are rushing by. You know, he's he's keeping up pace with the birds. Yep. Those look like swifts or something swallows, like that. They swallows, they look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have the yeah. forked tail. Uh, they yeah. look like barn swallows. Hey, I wonder we should uh, see if there's anything interesting in the um, symbol dictionary about swallows. Okay, hang on. Okay, so we have the uh, penguin reference Dictionary of Symbols to look up just to see what it has to say about swallows. 
The first thing that jumps out is that they're associated with spring and a sign of spring, which makes sense for air in the direction of the fool, the direction of east, you know, Mm -hmm. um, air in general being associated with spring. The Bambara of Mali regard the swallow as the assistant, a manifestation of the demiurge pharaoh, lord of the waters and of the word, and the highest expression of purity, in contrast with the earth unclean in the beginning. The swallow owes this important function to the fact that it never alights upon the ground and is therefore free of defilement. That seems kind of interesting in um, light of what Crowley says about this card. He says something like, let us picture him upright of life and free from vice. Yes. You know, something like that. Maybe yes, I, it's you know. uh, integer vitae scelerisque purus, upright of life and free from vice. Yeah. That's exactly it. He says, let us think of him as that way. <laughs> not, not that <laughs> he be is nice. that way, but in his highest manifestation, we can think of him as yeah. that way. A yeah. light shaft of the ideal. And then he also says, oh, he says he's mounted upon... A, a maddened steed. <laughs> ah, yes, the maddened steed. Yeah, that poor horse. I, I mean, like he, what he also says. He says he's altogether the prey of his idea, yeah, which I like comes that to too. him as inspiration without reflection. Right. So that, to me, sounded very much like, you know, the difference between Chokma and Bina. You know, with Bina, you have understanding. You have the sort of chewing the cut of the idea, you know, until you yep. thoroughly extract whatever understanding you can out of it. Whereas... You know, if you only have one side of the argument, you don't really understand yeah. the and whole idea. That that phrase, without reflection, mm-hmm. it kind of reminded me of our discussion about what he lacks is that Deccany lacks is part of the Queen of Cups, and she's yeah. all about reflection. Yes, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of cool. And also just the idea that, like, at that point in the tree, you have one and you have two, but in order to reflect it's three that reflects two, right? The Sephira, three reflects two. There's no yeah. reflection in the tree until that point. Yep. That's cool. And then he's got the two swords in his hand. So he's got the one in his his right hand has wings on it, which makes sense for air mm-hmm. um, being winged. And the other one, it's a sword with a round hilt. It almost makes the symbol of the sun, which would be fire, you know. Yeah, yeah, and that's a that's a poniard, which I or poniard, which I think has something to do with the wrist. Uh, and the idea is one is so this is like epe and dagger. So being able to fight at long range and at short range. But you know what? Also, I think it just makes sense because two swords for Gemini, right? Yeah, can't have an empty hand. <laughs> <laughs> and he's ready to fight. Oh, yeah, it's definitely he's in attack mode. He's zooming down on something. There was something, there was an interesting quote in here. Uh, Any action that he takes is easily brushed aside by opposition. Inadequate violence spells futility. And then Crowley includes this quote, Chimaira Bombadons in Vacuo, right? Yeah. So the full full, uh, quotation is, Utrum Chimaira Bombadons in Vacuo. Posit comedere secundas intentiones. And that was a quote from a 17th century sort of philosopher named William Chillingsworth. Is Actually, it, I thought it was from I Rabelais, however you say it in French. That. Rabelais, because that, because mm-hmm. Crowley was quite into uh, his writings, especially that one that in a one mm-hmm. of our episodes or something we posted on the site was about that uh, Pantagruel. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And he was really into that series because of its humor and mm-hmm. uh, satire. Hang um, on, let's look. We can figure this out. 
All right, so after a moment of Googling, we've concluded that this phrase was common as sort of a joke among philosophers, probably dating from at least the 17th century, but it also appears in Rabelais and Voltaire. Since we know that Crowley liked those French authors, that may have been his the provenance for him. Anyway, what it means, it's a sort of a send-up of philosophers talking in jargon, angels dancing on the head of a pin kind of phrase. What it really, what it literally translates to is a chimera buzzing in a vacuum. Yes, whether, actually, whether a chimera buzzing in a vacuum is capable of eating second intentions. Yeah, that was the full, the <laughs> That's full, the full quote, thing. But what he says in the Knight of Swords in Book of Thoth is a chimera buzzing in a vacuum, which is just a section of that fuller, right. fuller phrase about devouring second intentions, which is really interesting in terms of Gemini and just the idea of a chimera being a creature of multi, multi parts. Right. Know, it seems very Gemini and the idea of buzzing in a vacuum. I just, <laughs> in relation to Gemini, I find that really hilarious. It's, <laughs> it really is. I mean, just the idea of like talk, you know, whether there's meaning in it or not, you know, it's a deliberate nonsense phrase. It's pretty great. So he also, of course, as he always does, assigns an I Ching uh, hexagram yep. to this card. Uh, this one is composed of the Thunder trigram, as always, for the kings or knights, over the wind trigram, which is the trigram for the sword suit. And it's called heng, which means, I got the meaning persevering out of it. Yeah, I got duration and enduring, which mm-hmm. is just about the same thing. Yeah, and you know, in my, the commentary I read about it is weird in a couple of ways. So first of all, the two trigrams, the commentator I read suggested that the thunder one represents the eldest son and the wind one represents the eldest daughter. So when you take, you know, the eldest son of one family and eldest daughter of another and marry them, you have something that is very enduring. Firm above and gentle below, which is also, it also sort of has certain assumptions about the roles of men and women, which we don't have to completely debate. The uh, the interpretation that they take out of it was the superior person stands firm without changing his aim. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. So I was thinking, well, enduring, that's not really a quality of knights, but he does have that decan of Taurus. Right. You know, the one ruled by Saturn. So mm-hmm. that's definitely a a quality of enduring and persevering both Taurus and Saturn. And also one of the meanings for that trigram that I picked up that I thought was applicable to him, especially the meaning was keeping to the path first chosen. Yes. So the idea of choice, Gemini and choosing a path and sticking to it and kind of being. Because the act of choice was so important. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I get it. And, you know, I think in psychology, there is a sort of um, understanding of what happens when a person has poor boundaries. You know, when they have poor boundaries, they spend a lot of time talking about their boundaries, what distinguishes them from other people. And that sort of reminds me of this card, the idea that because he's easily pushed to one side or another, when he makes up his mind, he has a great investment in keeping to it. 
that becomes his show of strength. This might be a good time to talk about the geomantic figure. Oh, um, yes, exactly. For, for this guy, which is Albus. Yes, yes, or white or shining. That's kind of interesting in, in the sense that, um, you know, it has something to do with wisdom, which is a air quality of the mind, and it's something to do with purity of thought. And so in the best case scenario, you know, it's... He's supposed to be free from the vices and, and have the pure thought. And if you look at the figure itself, it's supposed to look like a vessel. It does, um, a little. With so it's a square base. above a, a triangle. And what I read about that was that it's, you know, to receive heaven, the vessel to receive from the supernals. So maybe the purity of thought has something to do with that. You know, and and the idea of white being Keter. Oh yeah. You know. Yeah, I also saw that peace, wisdom, beginnings, and profit, and all things in which deliberate planning is needed, mm. which is kind of interesting with this guy. Yeah. Yeah. But I also saw it reference this kind of a weak figure in geomancy, which you know could refer to the transitory nature. And if you invert the figure, you get Ubeus. Oh, the worst of all. Yeah. So. Yeah, that makes that, sense. Again, invert that idea of swords being bad inverted mm-hmm. this guy in particular yeah and white albus rubeus white and red you know those are opposites of a kind yeah mm-hmm. yeah purity and passion right does he also say that he is i'm trying to remember where this comes from i have a quote here that might be curly but might be something else inclined to domineer uh, overvalue small things well, that overvaluing small things makes sense in terms of the shortened force interference card, because I think that's a quality of the Eight of Swords. Yeah, there's you definitely know? a um, Mercury's missing the forest for the trees thing. Yeah. Yeah. And also when you think about someone being quote-unquote legalistic, you know, that's the fine points. Focusing yeah. on the minutiae and the fine print. Yep. I think that's just one of the flaws of swords and air types in general mm-hmm. is that tendency to be that way. <laughs> yeah, because they so value the abstract, the letter, the word, the form, that that becomes more important than the holistic picture. Three birds, we decided three swallows? Yep. Yep. Swallows... I found somewhere are associated with Mercury. So oh, that good. makes yeah. sense, too, that they're there. Yeah, they're very fast. Yeah. Swifts and swallows. Okay, um, let's see. As far as looking at the associated cards, it's funny, you know, looking at the associated majors and minors, the Hierophant and the Lovers and the Seven of Discs, Eight and Nine of uh, Swords, I don't see a lot of color continuity in there it's really just he's no he's all sword in the, quartz colors he's in air he's in air yeah. colors he's got all the colors of the fool um basically yeah. yeah all right we ready to move on to tabula mundi sure okay this might be a good point um a good place where we can read the uh, golden dawn's um description of the card because it applies in terms of the Court crest. Um, a winged warrior with crowned winged helmet mounted upon a brown steed. His general equipment is as that of the Knight of Wands, but he wears as a crest a winged six-pointed star, similar to those represented on the heads of Castor and Pollux, the Dioscuri, the twins of Gemini, a part of which constellation is included in his rule. He holds a drawn sword with the sigil of his scale yod upon its pommel, 
Beneath his horse's feet are dark driving stratus clouds. Yeah, so there's a lot of weather happening in here. Yeah, and it mentions in particular stratus clouds. There's another um, source weather manifestations that I have that gives for Gemini cirrus and flecked clouds, Mm -hmm. Um, but basically a powerful force. And you can see that in both the Crowley card and in my card, that idea of the motion of the winds and driving those clouds across the across the sky. Mm-hmm. So for the um, imagery of the card, he looks very much like a warrior. He's got the winged helm like Mercury. You see the crest is not only the six-pointed star that's mentioned in the book T description, but it comes directly from the Eight of Swords um, imagery. On It's got those poniards that are on the the eight of swords, Mm -hmm. but instead of there being eight of them, there's six of them to make it a six-pointed star. Ah, right, so that's that's what the stripey things are. That's, yeah, if you look Mm -hmm. closely, those are those little poniards that are in the eight of swords card. And then for the nine of swords, you have the boar's head that's um, Mm -hmm. the... uh, on his horse's breastplate, I guess you would call it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And that... Figure so that's the Mars Deccan, um, the boar being of the tower and bringing in the the nine of swords and Mars. That figure, that boar, actually has the lunar crescent or horns for the Deccan of Taurus. That's his shadow Deccan, so it's kind of hidden behind the boar's mm-hmm. head there. Um, so he's got all his Deccan imagery there, and he's on the brown steed, and he has the two swords, just like his son, the prince. Also, we'll see in that. In the prince card, especially, you know, one sword creates and the other slays. Yeah. But he's got this as well going on. He does. The the dad has it too, so. Yeah, um... yeah. The kid comes by it honestly. (laughs) That that horse is so badass. He scares the hell out of me, and he's looking at you like, you know, I'm I'm just barely holding it together. (laughs) eyes are rolling. You know, you ever see a horse really with their eyes kind of roll back in their head and they're you almost yeah. see like foam flying out of his mouth. And you know? <laughs> I've got this like this. I've got this boar's head hanging around my neck. <laughs> you know, and yeah. you can tell that he's seriously overstimulated it's, right now. <laughs> it's definitely um, like the mode of attack. Just look at it, and you can almost see that he's just he's rearing up. He's in motion. He's you know mm-hmm. he's really excited. <laughs> yeah. So the rays of yellow in the sky. You talk about those. Is it, it's just the lighting of the clouds. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. just the the mm-hmm. the idea. I was trying to. How do you draw wind? Right. You know, I was trying right. to draw wind. And, they look and, like uh, you know. They, it looks like it's lit by the sun. You know, in that very dramatic way from underneath that it sometimes happens. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's cool. And yellow, just you know, the colors of air are used here. The yellows and um, blues mm-hmm. and greens. Yeah, definitely fool-like colors. And he's sort of a um, Alexander the Great figure, you know, who I kind of associate with this with this card as a mm-hmm. historical personage. Yeah, yeah, much as they do in Solabuska. Yep. Yeah, he's definitely a conqueror. So, what are your manifestations of this card on your <laughs> massive spreadsheet of happenings? This one, I get a ton. Oh my God! Do so, you? I hardly yeah. ever get him. Yeah, I had to like do all these things to fit it on here because I get it even more than Queen of Swords apparently. That's interesting. Yeah, I did not know that. Well, I've gotten it quite a bit in more recent years because I grade 
now that I'm a teacher. Ah. So this to me is a grading card. Yeah. It means I have to sit there and be harsh judgment. <laughs> I don't like the easiest grader in the world, but still, this is like me. Uh, it's like me overcompensating because inside, I'm like, you guys all suck. But uh, but yeah, so I get this a lot when I'm grading. And then I get it when I'm migraines, which is true of all court cards, sword courts and many sword cards. I got it when I was working on the tables for my book, you know, that kind of systematic, dogmatic sort of arrangement of data. And pretty much uh, in times when I'm learning technical skills, so like when I learned to sound edit on Audacity, mm-hmm. for example, or when I, you know, learn to do stuff that's a bit of a stretch for me. So, yeah. How about you? You know, I don't get this card often, but when I do, I don't often like seeing it when I see it because there's something really harsh about it to me that I go, oh, that, you know, like yeah. that, that judgmental quality of the mind he's hard to deal with yeah yeah Yeah. so i have a hard time with this with this one when he does show up yeah yeah he's very uncompromising so yeah i have a very tense relationship with him but he he is a big part of my life i guess because of being a teacher yeah you know yep yeah and looking at the deccan rulers he's got saturn and mars the two you know malefics yeah and then in the middle jupiter which just kind of blows it up out of proportion, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Or something. Yeah, yeah, something I hear like you. That. that makes a lot of sense, actually, personally for me. I was born on Day of Mars, Hour of Saturn, so that kind of... <laughs> There's definitely a part of me that can be very combative about my ideals, and that's, I think, something I associate with him. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. There's definitely a combative energy, for sure, when I see this. So. And it's something... I probably should face head on instead of trying to avoid. <laughs> we all have to like deal with all 16 of them, right, right. <laughs> like it or not. Yep. Well, I Jeez, think we yeah. just about covered everything. I think I we think, did. So. I think we're almost ready to sum up. Pull back all the paper. Okay, so let's try and sum it up. Here we have the uh, King of Sylphs, Lord of the Winds and Breezes, uh, the fiery part of air, the qualities of attack. Let's see, his uh, association with Taurus and Gemini, his ability to see things in black and white, um, decision as a quality of choice. Right, we talked about, you know, the trickster nature of Mercury and some of the the stories of the the twins and the twins of twins um, and all the tragedies (laughs) associated with those four popping out of the two eggs. Right. His fear of failure, his stubbornness regarding ideas that he has arrived at, lack of nuance. A chimera buzzing in a vacuum. (laughs) (laughs) The missing decan of ruin, which would lead to love. The effect of will upon the intellect and the power of life and death. (laughs) by virtue of his office, (laughs) whatever that means. Pacific fire in primal air in the world of Yetzira, the maker of rules and and the stickler for rules sometimes. The overkill, you know, analysis precision, but overkill. (laughs) We talked a little bit about the swallows and their inability to land, their swiftness. Mm Mm-hmm. Militant intelligence and the violent power of motion applied to an apparently manageable element. 
The ability of the helicopter to turn on a dime. <laughs> the propeller beanie. <laughs> and the four directions. Yeah. And the god's eye view. And his facing the southeast. Directions of fire and of air. The prey of his own idea, which comes to him as inspiration without reflection. The idea of peace restored and what comes before that that precedes it. The magistrate. Uh, the man of the law, or the military commander. The idea of all the swords cards as having to do with the other. So in this case, the other is the twin. Oh, and we didn't mention Gemini's um, motto, which is, I think. Of course. Of course what else is. could it be? Right? <laughs> uh, King David, uh, with his sword, which he took from Goliath. The father of Solomon, greatest magician of all time. The charioteer, and his... Uh, Stories of invention and trickster nature. Alexander the Great. Robert E. Lee as the king of spades. Upright of life and free of vice. Yes, let us picture him thus. <laughs> let us, please. <laughs> See anything else? The storm and the idea of attack. Albus, the geomantic figure representing purity and receptiveness. Legal stuff, law, judgment, and military command. The superior person stands firm, hexagram 32, persevering or enduring. Uh, butterflies as metamorphosis. Yeah, and the angel of death, the winged foot stepping on a butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, grating. <laughs> yeah. Activating force behind ideas. Okay. So this has been The King or Knight of Swords, an uncompromising and rigid figure who nevertheless demonstrates remarkable flexibility of mind. Yeah, mutability. Yeah. So. He's not fixed, even though he might <laughs> seem to be. So cheers to all you Geminis. I think we're done with you for the moment. <laughs> and uh, we hope you will return next week to join us for one of everybody's favorite cards, the Queen of Swords. <laughs>